UK we call the media the fifth estate for a reason. It, it is it is part of how society functions. It's part of how society is governed. Uh, and I think for businesses, it's 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 part of how businesses can prove they exist. So I don't know what people's sort of perceptions of business or perceptions of entrepreneurship are. Um, but I think a lot of the time I sense that people have this thing of like, you go all in, you know, you sort of, you quit your job and you, you know, borrow a million dollars and you remortgage your house and you sell your firstborn child. And now you're an entre entrepreneur. You know, once upon a time, everyone had a Blackberry and Blackberry got complacent. They got cocky. And then Apple came out of nowhere and said, you don't need a keyboard. And if you watch the film, it's a great film, by the way. If you watch the film, you see the guys in Blackberry go, how can they not have a keyboard? This is so stupid. This won't last. This will implode. We don't have to change anything. We're Blackberry. And they were wrong. And I think it's cyclical because I think Apple are now going through the same thing where for so long, Apple has had such a dominant position. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to the channel. With me today, I've got a very, very special guest, none other than Omar Hamdi of uh, Pathos Communications. And Omar, this is a very special uh, occasion for me because I've been trying to get you on for a long time. And finally, here you are. I've had to come all the way to Dubai for you. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been, I've been watching your channel for a long time. So Mashallah. we've both been gearing up to this for <laughs> a long time. Alhamdulillah. No, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy. So look, uh, Omar, I'm going to kick off uh, by telling the audience that you are literally a joker, aren't you? <laughs> I was a joker. Now I'm much less funny. So I, so I, I, I used to be a comedian amongst other things, worked in the media for 10 years, TV host, writer, contributed to four books. Um, and now I'm, I'm just a boring business owner. So t t t tell me more about the comedian days and how, how did you get into that? Was that in university or? Uh, no, it was actually a few years after university. I just sort of stumbled into it as a hobby and then it became a very addictive hobby. And then stand up just opened the doors to doing all of these different things. So uh, my last job in the media was BBC Studios, where we're filming this today. There's an interesting sort of circularity to that. Uh, so I was a TV host on BBC One, um, contributed to four books, two of which were shortlisted for Times Book of the Year, produced documentaries, sold shows around the world, Amazon Prime, sold to China, all of these things. And then I got to a certain stage where I realized that actually this is quite valuable knowledge in here um, and tried to monetize it. And here I am monetizing. <laughs> Fantastic. I want to I want to stay on this topic of, of your background because I think it's important for what came mm. next. Um, what were your what was your kind of perception of this world? Because, you know, a lot of people um, obviously we all understand roughly the, the industry of the of the media and entertainment and so on. But there's actually very few people that make it there. And not least, you know, Muslims that, that make it there. So I'm very keen to understand your perception of that industry. I think a lot of people perceive the media as this sort of elitist, out of touch, uh, very clicky place. Um, they're not wrong. <laughs> um, they're not wrong. It is its own world with its own rules, a lot of them unwritten. Um, and, uh, and I think it's a very strange place. But it's also a very, very important place. It's a really important place. You know, in the UK, we call the media the fifth estate for a reason. It, it, is, it is part of how society functions. It's part of how society is governed. Uh, and I think for businesses, it's, it's, it's part of how businesses can prove they exist. Um, so it's important, 
And I think it's important that people try to understand this strange secret society uh, uh, as best they can. And what about Muslims looking to get into that industry? What, what advice would you have? Get into whatever industry you want. I, would, <laughs> um, um, I think there are lots of industries that are not exactly open doors. You know, I, your background's in the law. I, I think, you know, the law is similar to the media in some respects, that it has its own sort of subculture, its own written and unwritten rules. Um, so I think every industry is going to have its challenges. Um, I think, you know, if you work hard enough for long enough, um, you're, you're always going to, you know, get somewhere with it. Um, you probably won't go as far and as fast uh, as you would if your family, family, friends, neighbors, people you went to school with are in the same industry. And that's true for the media. That's true for the law. That's true for, you know, the plumbing business. You know, if everyone you know is a plumber and your dad owns a plumbing firm, you're going to be, you know, your, your ascent in the world of plumbing will be faster than if you don't know any plumbers and you've never fixed a pipe in your life, but you just love plumbing. Um, so there are always going to be challenges. I think, you know, do what you want to do. Um, and I think without getting too controversial too early in the interview, I think it, it's very easy to, I'm not going to say play the victim because clearly there are real victims. So it's not playing. It is. Um, but it's very easy, I think, to, to, to get too focused on that, too focused on the obstacles in anything in life, um, too focused on the obstacles and not focused enough on what you can do. Um, so that's, that's probably my, my comment. Uh, on that and then moving forward from there so you spent how many years in in that industry 10 years wow 10 long years 10 long underpaid years and then <laughs> you decide what it's interesting because there wasn't a moment where i decided right you know this is this is a new chapter you know when you look back at something you you know there's a clear narrative you could sort of go, you know, this is one chapter, this is another, this is another, you know, turn over a new page. But that's only in hindsight. When you're in it, when you're writing the story, the lines flow into each other. And sometimes they're messy and sometimes you cross things out. Sometimes you tear pages out. Sometimes you find pages that you forgot existed. Um, so that sort of neat narrative only exists in hindsight. Um, and I think it was probably more of a gradual transition is sort of crept up on me over time and I, I remember you know if we are looking for sort of turning points I remember speaking to a friend of mine very very successful serial entrepreneur uh, background in hedge funds and it was actually in Dubai that I was having dinner with him I just performed at Dubai Opera uh, which by the way is my favorite venue to perform at it's a beautiful beautiful venue anyone who's ever passing through Dubai try to sort of time it with a good show at, at Dubai Opera beautiful beautiful venue very well run so I just performed there having dinner with him before going to the airport and he was talking to me about the media um and he had this sort of challenge something that he wanted to get out in the media and i sort of effortlessly explained to him how to do it and i just saw his, his eyes light up and that was probably if there was a a pivotal moment i think that was a pivotal moment when i realized that actually you know you spend 10 years in an industry that very few people understand you end up with some actually quite valuable um knowledge that has a pretty good market value. Um, and then it's just a question of, well, how do you package that up to, 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 to get to your market? Um, but that was, that was probably the, the turning point, if there was one. And then you went back to London? Yep. 
And what was the next step? Where, how did you go from 10 years in the media, underpaid, performing at Dubai Opera to, okay, I'm going to leave this behind now. And there's this other thing that I've kind of just realized I've got in my arsenal. I think COVID helped because what COVID did is it increased the potential upside of focusing on business because COVID taught us that we have this amazing thing called Zoom, which suddenly means that Omar sat on his sofa in London in the middle of lockdown in the ghost town that was central London in lockdown. Omar can sit on his sofa and sell to anyone. He can email anyone, he can message anyone, he can sell to anyone. So that increased the upside of business. Uh, and I think that's, you know, people should not take this for granted. You know, once upon a time, we had to get on trains and we had to drive on motorways and we had to sit having a lunch with people we didn't like because we wanted them to sign a contract. Um, and now you just don't have to do that anymore. And it's just the efficiencies of that. So I think COVID increased the upside and it also increased the uncertainty around continuing in the media. So certainly the live performance uh, part of working in the media, that was absolutely, you know, an unknown for a long time, you know, a couple of years. Um, and then even the broadcast part, you know, it's, it, it's not as much fun being a TV presenter when you're social distancing from the person you're interviewing and, you know, everyone's sort of wiping down the microphone, you know, 20 times. It takes the fun away from it. It certainly takes the spontaneity away from it. Um, so I, I think COVID helped sort of push me over um, into that. So it was, a, it was a gradual transition then. So you were kind of moonlighting into... Yeah, I was moonlighting for a long time. I was moonlighting for a long time. And I think that's a really significant point. So I don't know what people's sort of perceptions of business or perceptions of entrepreneurship are. Um, but I think a lot of the time I sense that people have this thing of like, you go all in, you know, you sort of, you quit your job and you you know, borrow a million dollars and you remortgage your house and you sell your firstborn child and now you're an entre entrepreneur. Um, and there are obviously success stories of people who did, who do that. I mean, I've read a story, I don't know if it's, you know, verified, it might just be sort of apocryphal, uh, but, I've, but I've read a story a lot of the guy who started FedEx couldn't make payroll. I don't know if you've seen this one. It's, it's big on, every few weeks I see it on Twitter. The guy who started FedEx couldn't make payroll and the only idea he had was to go to Vegas and, you know, put all his money on black on roulette. And if he won, he could make payroll. And if he lost, FedEx would fold. Now, I don't know if that's true, but there, there are lots of stories like that of people going all in and, you know, all of that. And, oh, if I didn't make that sale, I would have been on the streets. The, the, the problem with that is there's a huge sample bias because you hear the stories of people who did this crazy leap of faith and it worked. The people who did the crazy leap of faith that it didn't work, who are most of the people, you don't read about them because they're, they're you know, they're working in a bar somewhere, you know, <laughs> like they're not, no one's writing about them. Yeah. So there's a, there's a really dangerous sample bias, I think, in that. And, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're running a VC fund, so you probably, uh, you know, know, know more about this than I do about how to look at risk. But my experience, which I think is probably a, a less stressful way to do it, is there was a long period of moonlighting and gradually sort of scaling things up and it just sort of crept up on me. And then there, there came a point when I thought, actually, this is, you know, this is what I should be focusing on. But mm. it was very, very gradual, which made it a lot less stressful. Because I think, especially in the early days, 
it's so unpredictable. You know, there's there's so much risk involved. And we've all seen the data of, you know, 90% of businesses fold in the first year and, you know, 93% fold in the first two years and all of that. So I think, you know, if you've got another source of income in those first couple of years when it's really, really unpredictable, um, I think that can that can make it a lot easier. So around the time that we were working together and Alhamdulillah, you you managed to get us as IFG into several you know prominent publications. Um, you were, I think, very much in that kind of moon moonlighting phase. Mm. Um, and then I've seen you uh, evolve over the years into what is now, mashallah, a, a very successful organization. And I want to talk about that transition period um, because a few interesting things happened in my uh, cold analysis. Uh, one is uh, I want to talk about PR in particular and, and this industry and why the focus on that. And the second thing I want to talk about is moving your business over to to, to Dubai. Um, so to start with the first one, why why PR? Now, I know we've had the story about this knowledge that you've built up, but what you know what is the problem that you're that you're solving really? Hmm. The interesting thing about Pathos is there's one thing that we do that is very very different to everyone else in the world. And there's another thing that we do that is quite different to most other people in the world. Um, and if you put those two things together, it really opens up the market. So the, the big one is pay on results. So we have the domain payonresultspr.com. And that was really just me listening to customers. You know, everyone out there wants to be in the media. Um, but there is a real trust deficit with PR because the traditional PR model, you pay your retainer every month. Naturally, when you're selling, you're going to give people sort of the best case scenario. And when you're sharing case studies, you're going to share your successful case studies. You're not going to share your failures. No one's going to do that when they're selling, when they're trying to sign someone up. So people can come in, you know, hoping for the best case scenario. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that the media is so unpredictable. There are so many moving parts to it. You know, there are so many things that are just completely uncontrollable that not everyone's going to get the best case scenario outcome. Um, so with the pay on results thing, uh, we don't charge people anything until they're published. We tell them exactly the publications that we're targeting, exactly what we're looking to do. And once we've got that result, we, we, we invoice them. Um, and that's really made a big difference. And then the second thing is um, we try to connect the dots. Um, so it's not just about creating media assets for people. And by the way, when we were doing a lot of work together, we weren't doing this yet. So maybe it would be worth, you know, continuing that conversation. What we've learned over the years is sophisticated clients like you guys, you get a media asset and you know what to do with it. You know to put it on your website, you know to put it in your emails, you know to use it in your nurturing sequences. You have something called nurturing sequences. Uh, you know how to use it in your lead gen. I just got an email uh, early hours of this morning from you know a very, very prominent client, uh, Y Combinator backed uh, startup, I think it was Y Combinator 2021. Um, one of the suggestions we gave him is mention the media in your Google ads. And I'm speaking from memory, click through rate increased by 76%, cost of acquisition decreased by 18%. We're having all of these conversations with our clients. So I think if we do that, that's really something that sets us apart. I can't remember what your question was, but I've enjoyed riffing on it. <laughs> Let's talk about the move to Dubai uh, okay. because I know that you, were, were you born and raised in London or what's the? Um, born in Epsom, okay. raised in Cardiff and then based in London for 
yeah. you know, 10-ish years before uh, uh, moving to Dubai. And, and I remember your move to Dubai, <clears throat> and I remember it being very business-driven. What, t- t- tell me about that decision and the background to that. It's interesting, because again, in hindsight, it seems very business-driven. But at the time, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I came to Dubai for 10 days at the end of lockdown two. Because we had three lockdowns in the UK at the end of lockdown two. And I said, look, I can't handle lockdown anymore. It's, you know, really tough for me. You know, living on my own, central London, no tourists, no business people. It's not nice. Um, uh, so I came to Dubai saying I'll head back to London for the last day of lockdown. And I did that. And then a few weeks later, lockdown three. And I just thought, can't handle this anymore. So originally it wasn't a move to Dubai. It was just coming back to Dubai. And I thought, I'll sit this out. Now, people have lots of different perceptions of Dubai. I think, you know, people think of it as a great place to have a stopover if you're flying to Asia or somewhere. Um, Some people think of it as, you know, a a very sort of pro-business environment in terms of tax. Um, um, But actually, what I find most interesting about Dubai is something else. First of all, the tax thing is important. You know, I speak to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, um, say in the UK, Ireland, Europe, US, and, you know, as soon as they start making money, they realize that it's, you know, it's not really your money. Um, and, and it's a shock, you know, it's a shock. You know, I speak to young guys that, you know, I, I work with as, you know, freelancers and things. We bring them in to do different things. And it's a shock that suddenly, well, I thought I made that much money. Actually, I only made about half of that. Now, it's not just about paying your tax. The thing that I think is is most significant for a startup and for a high growth business is the compound returns on reinvesting that money because if you're losing say between corporate tax and income tax let's say you're losing 30 percent of your money that could be the 30 percent that you could have kept to one side to reinvest that 30 percent could be the difference between you having a lifestyle business and having something left over to you know get admin support or run some ads or do some PR and then you look at the compound return on that 30% over five years and suddenly you've got two very 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 different businesses but I don't think that's really the reason to move to Dubai there are lots of places in the world with you know favorable tax I mean Ireland just next door to the UK is 12.5% corporate tax I think GDP per capita Ireland one of the richest countries in the world Brits are still doing jokes about the Irish, maybe learn something from the Irish, you know. Um, um, But um, also, you know, Ireland has a non-dom scheme. You know, anyone who hasn't lived in Ireland for the last 15 years can move to Ireland, be an hour away from the UK and only pay money on, uh, only pay tax on, uh, you know, Ireland source income. I'm not giving tax advice, but that's just based on my Googling. Um, So, and there are lots of countries that have territorial tax, where again, if you're earning outside that country, I think, you know, Thailand has tried this, Malaysia's tried this. So if you want to, you know, minimize your tax, there are lots of options. That's what I'm saying. So I I don't think Dubai is just there because the the tax is low. Here's the magic thing uh, about Dubai. Dubai is the only place in the world where it is as easy to recruit, contract with, partner with a Brit as it is with a Nigerian or a Filipino um, or I, I, mean, I mean Zia, the guy who's doing the, the tech for this podcast is Afghani, right? Like 
it, it, it's as easy as, you know, Zia's employer, I hope you don't mind me getting you involved in this, Zia, yeah, you know, your employer got you a visa as someone resident here. It was exactly the same process that they followed for Zia as it is that they followed for John, the British guy, or Chuck, the American. And actually, this is the only place in the world that treats Afghanis the same as Brits when it comes to employment, visas, residences. And that's pretty magical, actually. It's pretty magical. And, you know, I, I was in one of the malls uh, last weekend here, and the UNHCR, you know, the UN refugee, have you seen those charity fundraise people, fundra those charity fundraising people? The UNHCR were here, and they were stopping people saying, do you want to donate to refugees? And I think the guy was Syrian. And I thought, if this guy was in the UK, he'd be receiving the donations. And I know that's a bit of a sort of, you know, flippant thing to say, and it's meant with all respect. But if he was in the UK, he'd be receiving the donations. In Dubai, he's employed gathering donations. And, and I think that's, that's really quite special. Um, going back to the business side of this, I think a lot of businesses have front office and back office. So you've got the front office in London, New York, Toronto, the client-facing people. And then you have the back office, um, which are, you know, the administrators, the accounts, the lead generation, the appointment setting, um, maybe some of the, you know, design work. And that might be in India, the Philippines, Nigeria, wherever. And a lot of businesses, I think, are held back by those two teams not speaking to each other, not being in the same place, doing everything over Zoom. You know, I love Zoom for sales, but I think for actually working together as a team, I'm not the biggest believer in remote work uh, at all. Um, so being able to bring those two teams together, that's really, really special. Um, and, and I don't think, I'm not aware of anywhere else in the world where it's as possible as it is in Dubai to bring those people together. And I think, you know, huge respect to what Dubai has done in terms of, you know, creating that, that, that place where people can come together and, and do business. And, I, and I, don't think, I don't think there's enough recognition, perhaps, for how unique Dubai is uh, in that respect. So, so bottom line then, if I'm sure you get friends asking you, should I move my business to Dubai? What's the answer? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Why? I think the, the labor pool, the mix of people is very, very special. Um, it's quite a nice place to live. In the scheme of things, the UAE is a startup. You know, 50 years, 51 years in the scheme of things is a startup. So you're living in a startup. So if you ever need some inspiration, you can look out of the window. <laughs> um, and it's a startup that you know, especially with Dubai, it's a startup that wasn't necessarily uh, backed by the biggest VC funds. Uh, you know, Dubai has, you know, some natural resources, but certainly not as much as, uh, as its neighbors. Um, you wouldn't think that somewhere as hot as Dubai in the summer would be, you know, this global hub. Um, as I, you know, I read in the, in, you know, in, in one of the history books about, uh, the delegation from Dubai going to Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, uh, lobbying him for Dubai to have an airport. And, you know, I don't think Harold Macmillan would ever have imagined that this airport that he's giving permission to be built would be the busiest international airport in the world. So 
you're living in a place that is moving forward. You're living in a place that is scaling. You're living in a place that faces some of the some of the challenges that any scaling operation has, and some of the excitement and the unlimited opportunities that any scaling operation has. Um, and the weather's quite nice. And what's it done for your business then, compared to <clears throat> where you were in mm. London? How do you feel your business has advanced, and do you think it would be possible for your business today to be in the position that it's in? had you stayed in London? I don't think it would be possible. It wouldn't be impossible, but it would be far less likely. And I think if you look at our growth rate, I was looking at a ranking of the fastest growing PR agencies in the world. And I was looking at the sort of compound annual growth rate of those businesses. And you know, if we'd sent in our accounts to that ranking, I think we would have been the third fastest growing PR agency in the world. And I think it's a lot easier to do that. First of all, you need to have great processes and a great product and a great sort of business model, which of course we've talked about before, of sort of the pay on results thing, it opens up the market. But I think you need access to the right people, um, whether they're as employees or partners or contractors or whatever it is, you need, you need to be able to meet the right people who can help you deliver. Um, and I think that's a lot easier uh, than it is in, in most places in the world. I think, frankly, it is easier than it is in, in the UK. Um, I remember an opinion piece that, that we worked on, uh, we worked on uh, with James Khan uh, of Dragon's Den fame, and I know he's okay with me you know, referring to this, so I'll talk about it. Um, and it was really talking about what if the UK had a similar visa system to the UAE. It wasn't framed like that, but that was basically the argument. What if a British employer could say, we want to hire this person. Let's say we've been working with them on Fiverr or Upwork for three months and uh, they're in the Philippines and they're great. Can we have a visa for them, please? We want to employ them. And I think something similar does exist, but only for high skilled jobs. And, you know, actually, a lot of the time it's 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 the perhaps more junior jobs where you've got this amazing global talent pool. Wouldn't it be amazing if if you could do that in the UK? But actually, you can't. Um, and you know, that's a decision for Mr. Sunak and his cabinet. It's above my pay grade. The powers that be. Yeah. But I think if you have access to the right people and you're in a place that sort of fuels your your creativity and, and your progress, life's a lot easier. You know, it is it is tempting to say, you know, I think, um, what's his name? Balaji something. One of the guys on Twitter. Do you follow this man? Yeah, I know yeah. who you're referring yeah. to. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to misname him or, you know, all respect to him. You know, he, he talks about the descending world and the ascending world. Yeah. And that's actually a much more accurate map of reality than, you know, the, what we were probably taught at school, which was the developing world and the developed world, <clears throat> or the more politically correct, less economically developed countries, more economically developed countries. Because actually, if you look at descending and ascending, it doesn't talk about what's behind mm countries it talks about what's ahead of countries and i think that's that's becoming i think clearer day by day i love the uk proud of you know being british wish all the best for the uk but i think the policies that are gonna work in the uk in the next century are not the same policies that have worked in the last century and i feel like the ruling class uh, in the in the UK are perhaps slightly in denial about how much the world is changing. 
Uh, and without getting into Brexit, I don't think we've got time for Brexit. But, you know, whether you were for or against Brexit, one of the exciting things or anxiety inducing things, depending on your position, one of those things about Brexit is that Britain would have that independence to, to do things like, you know, having its own immigration system, its own tax system. And actually nothing's changed. So what was the point? Fair. Um, I want to talk about Dubai as a place to live um, on a personal level. So I've done a lot of content on my move to Dubai and I'm sure you, like me, have got lots of people messaging you about, I want to move to Dubai, tell me more. What do you think is the biggest misconception about living in Dubai? I think for people who are coming here for work, I think there is, just judging by you know, the people who I meet who are looking for roles here, I think there is this outdated perception of, well, I'm British, I went to university in Britain, pay me a fortune, I'm so special. And I think that might have been true to an extent, like 20 years ago, but actually now so many people are moving here that it is a very, very competitive uh, labor market. It's a very competitive, you know, business services market. Um, so you have to work hard. You have to work hard. Um, I'm quite surprised by some of the misconceptions about the, the sort of the, the society uh, in, in Dubai. So I think a lot of people still, um, it's probably less so with the people who are watching this uh, interview, um, but I think a lot of people uh, think that, you know, this is an, you know, a Middle Eastern Islamic country with all of the connotations that come with that. I, um, I don't think people necessarily know, you know, quite how open it is, quite how tolerant it is. And the fact is, really, Dubai can be whatever you want it to be. You know, if you want Dubai to be the French Riviera, there's an area of Dubai for that. If you want Dubai to be London, there are probably a few pubs where you can sit in the dark uh, and, you know, be in London. Um, if you want Dubai to be this very, very peaceful you know, family-oriented place where you can hear the call to prayer because that's important for you. There are lots of areas for that. So I think there isn't really any one Dubai, like any big city, you know, like like London. You know, you can, if you want to, you can, you know, live in East London or you can live in, you know, Central London, you know. So I think, I think there are lots of misconceptions about it. I think probably, like with anywhere, don't rely on what's on YouTube. <laughs> Go there and see if you like it, because I think there is something there is something intangible about a place that some people just like, some people don't. So I think come and experience it. Try as far as you can to experience it as someone who lives and works here, not as someone who's here on a holiday who never leaves a five star resort. That's probably not going to prepare you for living somewhere just like, you know, staying in you know, uh, the Dorchester in London for three nights isn't going to prepare you for working in a call centre in Sunderland. Uh, you know, you have to actually, you know, live in the place for a few days or a week or two and, and, and see if it works for you. So, so what, is, what does the future look like? Do you see this as home? As much as anywhere. As much as anywhere. Um, so have you come across Nomad Capitalist? You must have come across Nomad Capitalist. I watch a lot of videos from Andrew Henderson, uh, Nomad Capitalist. We've done a little bit of work with them uh, in the past. And their slogan is, go where you're treated best. And I think, you know, you've got to go where you're treated best. And I think, you know, generally, Dubai 
has treated me very, very well. Um, so I think, yeah, I think this is home for now, for the foreseeable future. And do you think... I don't know if I'll be buried here. <laughs> but who knows how long we all have to live, so... And do you think that answer is different for someone who's single, someone who's married, someone who's married with children, older, younger? Um, I think it could be. I think a lot of people, you know, so one of my friends in, in, in Istanbul uh, is, is talking about potentially moving here. And I think sometimes the wives love Dubai, sometimes they hate it. So I think that's a factor. Um, I think Dubai is great for kids. Like I really, in a good way, I envy any child who is raised in Dubai because it is it is a playground. It's it's so safe. It's so family friendly. I think a lot of times uh, in some parts of the world, family friendliness is an afterthought. Whereas I feel like here it is really baked into how you know every restaurant every cafe every mall every every place is is sort of built with families in mind so i think great for kids obviously there's a financial aspect which is you, you have to pay for schooling so that needs to be sort of priced in um but you know if you're maybe someone who wants to pay for private schooling anyway then there's really no difference um but i think in some ways it's more perfect for families with children than it is for young single guys which is very different from the Dubai that you see on social media this is the thing is I think there's there's a snapshot of Dubai that we see on social media which is actually very very different I think from the range of experiences in Dubai and they're all good they're all good experiences but I think if you you know I scroll through my Twitter and usually if someone's talking about Dubai it is a young single guy who's probably made a few million in crypto, sat on a yacht, you know, being thoughtful and intense, selling his coaching program. And actually, there are so many different Dubais and they, they work so well for different people. And I think if you're, a, if you're a young family, it's probably a more perfect place than if you're a young single guy. Hmm. We've definitely found that. Um, it's been... Yeah, it's 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 been great in that respect, and also um, just letting your kids play, just letting your kids do what they want, knowing that you know, God willing, we're going to be okay. You know, it's safe. Yeah, for sure. Um, Omar, I noticed. Uh, I'm into my watches, as you know. Uh, yes, you are. You're a big watch guy. You're sporting a Cartier Tank Must, I think. Yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> has Dubai given you a taste of? nice things do you think no no i'm jenny from the block <laughs> i'm jenny with, from the block jenny from I'm, the block with a with a tank must yes but this is the one exception i'm i'm a very very simple guy i'm a very very simple guy and i'm a very sort of conservative guy you know you never know what's gonna happen in life um so i'm not i'm not a blink uh, guy at all uh, and i think you know staying humble is is good it's true but this is a very beautiful watch it is mashallah and um i i, I was but by the bystanders this is a casio <laughs> <laughs> this is important i've, I've got a casio there you go. <laughs> by the bystanders this is like you know <laughs> but it's but it is mashallah a very nice watch Thank and you. actually um i i was in cartier the other day and the guy said to me uh, i asked about the tank must and he said for the first time in his 17 years it's on a wait list now 
and oh, since I got it, it's the <laughs> it's the celebrity endorsement, really. It's true. They paid you. <laughs> um, and I, I want to talk about this kind of uh, your take on this because I'm. I mean, I don't want to cast any aspersions on any business, but I'm not sure about how scarce their supply actually is. And we've seen this in other businesses. Like- I think it's not scarce at all. I mean, build another factory, guys. <laughs> you know, it's not as if they fall from the sky and you have to wait for the watches to fall from the sky. Oh, is it raining Cartier's today? Oh no, better luck tomorrow. Make more watches. It's yeah. absolutely artificially created scarcity, isn't it? And you think Rolex is the same? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And I think this is a really interesting marketing tactic, hmm. isn't it? And it's, this is sort of one of the few sort of universal laws of, of selling, isn't it? And it, you'd see the same thing in a market stall. Uh, you know, the guy's selling his, you know, whisking machine for, you know, three pounds or something saying, oh, I've only got five of these left. And actually he hasn't. He's, he's got his white van full of 200 of them, you know, and he's got another shipment of 10,000 coming in from China next week. Oh, I've only got five left. Oh, there you go. Um, and it's just one of those things that that just works. It's a sort of hack for the brain. Um and it's interesting that at every level of the market, scarcity works. Um, and there's probably an interesting business lesson there. I, I don't think every business should create artificial scarcity because I think probably people will see through it. If you and I are smart enough to see through it when Cartier and Rolex do it, then if the average small business did it, it would probably be you know, quite obvious uh, what's going on. But I do think creating a level of exclusivity um, of maybe, you know, tiered pricing. That's something that we're experimenting with is, you know, with with clients who we've got a really good relationship with, almost making them part of a club where we introduce them to other sort of pay on results or results focused providers. So we're almost creating an ecosystem, we're almost creating a club of people who have the same values, who want that sort of no nonsense, transparent uh, way of purchasing business services um so i think there's absolutely a lesson there speaking of ecosystems i have always known you to be an apple guy and when i picked you up earlier you had a samsung yes why is that so i'll tell you the truth and then i'll tell you the sort of remember what i was saying about things make sense in hindsight (laughs) so i'll tell you the truth of how it happened and then i'll tell you the sort of hindsight of it um the service in the apple store is just so bad it's so bad and i just watched the film blackberry Uh, which is in the cinema, which is the story of BlackBerry. And it's interesting how empires rise and fall. You know, once upon a time, everyone had a BlackBerry and BlackBerry got complacent. They got cocky. And then Apple came out of nowhere and said, you don't need a keyboard. And if you watch the film, it's a great film, by the way. If you watch the film, you see the guys in BlackBerry go, how can they not have a keyboard? This is so stupid. This won't last. This will implode. We don't have to change anything. We're BlackBerry. And they were wrong. And I think it's cyclical because I think Apple are now going through the same thing where for so long, Apple has had such a dominant position when it comes to smartphones that actually what made Apple cool was that you'd go to the Apple store and there were no tills and it was all white and it was like the future and everyone was nice and everyone was helpful. And actually they've lost that. What they've actually got now in my limited experience is some poorly trained, arrogant people. Um, and actually that's not what I want. I'm paying a premium for something that I know 
as per various court judgments, has planned obsolescence of two years. Like, I'm willing to be scammed, but I need you to smile while you scam me. And they're not even smiling anymore. Yeah. So I had a bad experience in the Apple store. I marched to the Samsung store and I announced to the store. I was very melodramatic about it. I announced to the store. I said, hello, everyone. I've just come from the Apple store. They were very rude to me. Poach me. Take my money. Take my money. Take my money. And I said, what's the best phone you've got? What's the iPhone killer? And they knew, and they were very well trained. This is the thing. They were very, very well trained. They said, this is the iPhone killer. It's the Samsung Z Fold 4. It's, it's an iPhone and an iPad in your pocket. All right. Um, they said they, that. They said it's an iPhone and an iPad. They didn't say it like that. Oh. That's me. Probably Samsung <laughs> should hire me for the marketing. But but that's what it is. For PR. Um, they for, PR, hire for PR. For PR. Absolutely. <laughs> we actually just did a, a bit of press where it was someone who was in partnership with Apple. And we had to deal with Apple's PR team to get sort of authorization to mention Apple and say things about Apple. So not not too far not too far from the truth um um and then just the the service level of it was three members of staff one person to sell me the phone another person to train me on how to use the phone i told him look i'm so used to iphone how does it work they had a very well prepared structure for how to explain how to use the phone with reference to ios they knew exactly what they had to do and then the third member of staff was there just to do the sort of the polishing and to put the covers on and that's how you win market share. And I think there's a business lesson there that people get comfortable. You know, BlackBerry got comfortable, died. All of a sudden, it's all of a sudden as well. And I would predict, mark this, watch this space, mark my words that Apple is going to implode. Because I think the next step in the evolution of smartphones is foldables. The technology is there. Google have just released a foldable phone and you've got lots of like lesser known Chinese manufacturers. There's so many options now when it comes to foldables. The technology is there. It's a matter of time until there's a critical mass where everyone has seen someone pull a phone out of their pocket and go and suddenly have a tablet in their pocket. Once it hits that sort of tipping point, I think Apple's going to struggle. Interesting. This is my prediction. I'm going to be slightly unfair. <clears throat> and ask you something, I mean, most of this, I mean, all of it is pretty much unscripted, but I'm going to ask you something that perhaps requires a bit of thought. Okay. Tell me one thing that most people don't agree with you on. <laughs> this is hard. This is very hard. How much of this pregnant pause are you going to keep in the edit? <laughs> That's the question, Marcin. Here's something business related. I think you don't need to spend a lot of money on advertising to grow a business. Tell me more. So for a while, I've had this idea for like a blog post or an opinion piece or something. And we're going to flirt with conspiracy theory on this, if I may. Okay. And the, the title of this blog post opinion piece is the VC PPC industrial complex. The VC PPC industrial complex. So I read a stat that I think something like 70 cents of every venture dollar goes on pay-per-click advertising with either Facebook, Meta, Google, or Amazon. So there's this very interesting ecosystem of people in Silicon Valley funding businesses. And actually, when they say funding businesses, a lot of that money, I'm not sure if it's exactly 70 cents. I don't know what the stat is. We can Google it later, but it's something like that. They're not really funding businesses. They're actually funding three businesses, 
Meta, Google, and Amazon. So there's this sort of money laundering operation, for lack of a better word, where people are ostensibly investing in startups. The startups are investing in those three businesses. And I would bet that a lot of people running the big VC funds go and play golf in the same place as the people who are senior execs at those three companies. So you could argue that there is perhaps something resembling a conflict of interest when it comes to the question, how does a growing business advertise and get leads? My suggestion is this. We've been conditioned to think that the only way to scale a business, the only way to reliably get leads is through pay-per-click on those different platforms. And my suggestion is that actually by reaching out to people directly, whether it's through uh, LinkedIn DMs or through you know targeted personal emails, this is so much cheaper, so much cheaper, so much cheaper. Um, and in some ways, a lot more effective. Um, and then I can hear people thinking, oh, but then people will say you're spamming them. Well, no one seems to mind when you spam their search results. You can already spam someone's inbox by Google display ads. So no one sees that as spam. So as long as you're paying Google, it's not spam. But if you just email someone, so if I pay to advertise in Mohsin's inbox, that's not spam. But if I email Mohsin, that's, oh, oh God, he might not like that. So I think we're conditioned to see certain types of marketing, certain types of lead generation as being the way to do it. And certain types of marketing, certain types of lead generation as being not the way to do it. And I think there are vested interests at the top of the startup ecosystem that are maintaining these misconceptions. And they're costing growing businesses millions in misspent ad spend and billions in opportunity cost in enterprise value. Mic drop. <laughs> so we're a finance channel, Omar. So I want to ask you some quick fire financy questions. Okay. okay. So the first one, you ready? I'm ready. The first one is, what's the best investment you made? Buying lots of books and reading them. Any book in particular? My favorite book is nothing to do with business, so I can't say this was a good return on investment. My favorite book is L'Etranger, The Outsider by Albert Camus. But maybe it is a good investment because it's a, it's a very philosophical novel. It's an existentialist novel. So it really says that um, people have to create their own meaning to events, which I think maybe actually is a very useful mentality when you're running a business because you know something bad happens. And I think a lot of the time, the, the most valuable skill isn't accounting or bookkeeping or marketing or HR. The most valuable skill is something bad happens and you forcing yourself, training yourself to assign a good meaning to it and to try to land on your feet. So maybe we have Albert Camus and the existentialist movement to thank for that. I mean, on that point, um, I personally always find that you know, whenever something happens, good, bad, or my perception of good, bad, whatever, um, it's as as a Muslim, it's very easy uh, to attribute everything to uh, you know the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa taala. 
So whenever something happens or like, you know, a blocker comes in the way or, you know, perhaps in your instance, it might be I've not landed this client that I've been so hard after. Um, I find a lot of solace in saying, good, that was that was the destiny. And, you know, khalas. and I think running a business is so much easier if you do have some kind of spiritual tradition um, or religious tradition. Uh, behind you, which is why, you know, so many founders do, you know, meditation and these types of things. I don't think it's a coincidence um, uh, that people are looking for deeper meaning because you do need to have a certain sort of detachment from uh, from events. What's the thing you most regret spending on? My Kindle. Great idea, but there just isn't space for it in my life, especially when I've got a Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 4, which really is a Kindle in your pocket. There isn't space for another device in my life. And the converse question, what do you find a lot of value in spending in? This is a very sort of uh, ethnic child of immigrants answer. You could guess what I'm going to say is education, but not necessarily traditional education. I mean, I've got a great degree from a top you know, Red Brick University, thank you very much, Leeds University, for having me. Um, but I think in the early days, um, I did a lot of uh, Guardian masterclasses. Um, so these are sort of evening classes run by the Guardian newspaper, which I think really helped me sort of sharpen uh, my skills in, in relating to editors and producers. Um, and I think it was like a couple of hundred pounds. Actually, best money I ever spent. You know, absolutely the best money I ever spent. And what about uh, something that you spend on that is almost a guilty pleasure or something that people might be like, you spend money on that? But actually you find a lot of value. Yeah, I spend a lot of money on Uber. But I love Uber. Do you remember pre-Uber? No. Remember pre-Uber? I've always driven. You've always driven. Okay, so I don't drive. But... Taxis were really bad. Remember the pre-Uber world? You had to wait for a taxi. And then you call the minicab company and you say, where's the taxi? And they say, it's on its way. And you say, on its way from where? And they say, on its way and hang up on you. It's around the corner. Around the corner. Which corner? Which corner are you talking about? Which corner? Tell me the corner. He's been stuck on this corner for 15 minutes. Which corner is this? You know? So it's easy to forget how bad things were. It's easy to forget how bad things were. Yeah, Uber's very cool. But why, why not just drive? Not for me. It, it seems very difficult and very stressful. Like, I find sitting in a passenger seat uncomfortable. I just, I honestly look at all of these cars flying around and I'm like, how is this working? This is very, very dangerous. It's, it's not for me. That's going to be an awkward journey back then, isn't it's it? It's going to be very, very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless you're driving, then I'm secure. Then I'm secure. I'm comfortable. Yeah, yeah. driving just doesn't seem like, I don't think I'd enjoy it. It's very, very stressful. Well, look, it's been, uh, it's been fantastic having you, Omar. I'm sure uh, I've learned a lot, certainly, and I'm sure the audience have learned a lot as well. And uh, inshallah, we'll do something again. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam.